Every word of God is pure, and all Scripture has been given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our instruction in righteousness. The portion that's on the basis for our meditation on this Transfiguration Weekend is from John chapter 5, verses 31 to 39, the words of our Savior. If I were to testify about myself, my testimony would not be valid. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. The testimony I receive is not from man, but I am saying these things that you may be saved. John was a lamp that was shining brightly, and for a while you wanted to enjoy his light. But I have testimony greater than John's. For the works that the Father gave me to carry out, the very works that I am doing, these testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who has sent me, he is the one who has testified about me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form. And you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe the one he sent. You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life. They testify about me. So far, our text. Dear fellow redeemed, in Christ Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem so that he could die on Calvary and completed the work of salvation with his resurrection on Easter morning, all so that we might have a Savior, grace and peace be unto you. We've come to the end of one season of the church year and are about to launch off into another one. We've come to the end of the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is kind of the Christmas and post-Christmas celebration. The Son of God has come from heaven. He's born true man. And now what is he going to be? Well, he's going to be the Savior of the world. So during Epiphany, we talk about the visit of the wise men. Who is he going to be? He's going to be the mighty, powerful Savior. So we talk about the first of the miracles with the wedding at Cana. Who is he going to be? He's going to be the one chosen, anointed by God himself to be the Savior of the world. So we talk about the baptism. And finally, Epiphany closes with, traditionally, the story of the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration reminding us that Jesus is both true man and true God. And it launches us from the Mount of Transfiguration, takes us now into the Lenten season, taking us to Mount Calvary. We have the opportunity to review once again who it is that's going to be dying on that cross on Good Friday. There have been a lot of human beings that died on the crosses. In fact, that day, there were two other human beings that died on the cross. But what was so special about the man who died in the middle? That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to be thinking about as we launch off into the Lenten season. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know every single day of our life. It was always every day on the mind of the Savior. He knew from the time he was born in Bethlehem where he was headed. He was headed to Calvary. He knew the future, something we don't know. He knew what was going to, how all that story was going to end, and yet he went that way all the way even to the point of finally dying on that cross. There have been a lot of people over the years who have claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be God. I did a brief research, and I guess it's best summarized by what one person said. If we were, after listing dozens and dozens of so-called self-proclaimed messiahs, or gods, he said, if I were to tell you all of them, there wouldn't be enough room in a book to fill all the people that have done this over the years. There was an interesting story about one particular individual 
a Jewish person who claimed to be the Messiah. He gained a really, really large, large following. <clears throat> and then his land was invaded by the Islam, army of the Islam, and they gave him a choice. You can continue to proclaim to be God or convert to Islam. He converted to Islam. And you can see the difference between that particular Messiah and the one that we call the Messiah, because the one we call Messiah did not shun to go to the cross, did not get off the cross when he could have, but he stayed there. Well, this becomes very important that we're sure who Jesus is as he dies on the cross. We pray that God's Spirit will bless our study of the words that have been recorded. I don't think there's another section in Scripture that uses the word testify, can also be translated witness, as many times as found here in our reading. And Jesus is establishing this. I want you to know who I am, and I'm going to call in some witnesses. He starts out with verse 31. If I were to testify about myself, my testimony would not be valid. Jesus frankly admits, if I'm the only person saying I'm the Messiah, if it's just talk, talk is cheap. But then he proceeds to call witnesses. He starts with a very unusual one before building to very powerful ones. We're at verse 33 of our text. Excuse me, verse 32. There's another witness who testifies about me, and I know his testimony about me is valid. You sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. He calls a unique witness to begin. He calls a unique witness because he's starting where those folks are. Those folks at one time thought a great deal about John. We read verse 3, 5. John was a lamp that was shining brightly, and for a while you wanted to enjoy his light. He starts where they were, were at because they thought a lot of John. So here, let me call the first witness. And you, in fact, you're the ones who sent to John. And you remember how you asked him about who the, are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? And he answered truthfully saying, I'm not the Messiah, but there is one that's coming after me who is mightier than I am. And then he proceeded in the succeeding days to say, there he is, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, speaking about Jesus himself. Verse 34, the testimony I receive is not from man, but I am saying these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is trying to get them to start where they were already at. There was something unusual about John. We thought he was maybe Elijah. We thought he was a great prophet from God. What did he say about Jesus? And you get the testimony from John. But he was just a lamp, a lamp shining brightly. He was shining for a while, a short period of time, but he was not the light of the world that continually shines. That's Jesus. So the Savior calls his first witness, but he almost discards that witness immediately. We were going on to verse 36. But I have testimony greater than John's. For the works that the Father gave me to carry out, the very works that I am doing, these testify about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus now starts calling in some very high-powered, reliable, trustworthy witnesses. The first witness he calls is, just look what I'm doing. I'm doing what my Father sent me to do. Look at my works. You start to think about the works of Jesus. I suppose the first place we stop off at are the miracles of the Savior. Those were mighty, powerful testimonies to his being true God. The Holy Spirit's recorded for us about 35 miracles of Jesus, although it's very hard to count and number the miracles. For example, do you count the healing of the ten lepers as one miracle or ten? If you were one of the ten lepers, you'd count it a very personal one, for sure. 
And then we have no way to tally up the number of times, the number of miracles involved, when they were told that people came from all over the hillside, came down, and Jesus healed them of all their diseases, all of their ailments. Those aren't even, an account like that, found several times in the New Testament, is not even listed in the 35 miracles that are recorded in anybody's listening like that. So we can safely say that the Savior performed thousands and thousands of miracles. And the more miracles he performed, the more people realized, I know where I can go get help. I can go get help from that Jesus. I've heard what he's been doing. So Jesus' works testify that he's true God. Now, it's hard when you're putting together a harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to exactly place everything. But we are in John chapter 5 in our text here. So Jesus is referring to the miracles he's already done. Very, John, as we've learned in our studies before, records very few miracles. Most of them are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <clears throat> so how many have were performed by this time? Well, if you take a listing of the miracles and you try to piece it together in connection with John chapter 5, you've got a number of miracles uh, regarding healings. You've got... Um, <clears throat> Peter's mother-in-law, the leopard, the paralytic, the man with the withered hand, the centurion's servant. You got the blind and mute man. You got the two uh, that were blind men near, near Capernaum. That's healings. Now there's another whole category of miracles. Demon possession. And you've got a number of, clean, of Jesus casting out unclean spirits. That's another whole category. And then you've got the other miracles where he's able to control the wind and the waves. And the reaction of the people is, who is this man that he can command the wind and the waves to obey? The changing of water into wine. So his, that, his fame went throughout the whole region, what he was able to do. And then you've got in there his power over death with the, heal, with the raising of the youth of Nain and the daughter Jairus. And people could really say, We've, we've never seen anything like this. We've never, in the history of the world, seen someone that can do these things. Those works testify to Jesus, that he's true God. But as powerful as those works were, Jesus was working other things as well that the Father sent him to do. And we stop a lot of times at the miracles of Jesus because they are impressive. But the thing that he was doing day by day and week by week and hour by hour, was preaching God's word. He was teaching the people. Sometimes it was in a boat to the seashore. Sometimes it was on a mountaintop. Sometimes it was in a room. Sometimes it was walking along the road. But he was constantly, constantly teaching. And what was the reaction to people when they heard his teaching? He's teaching as one with authority. He's not teaching like our religious readers. He's teaching God's word. We, we, can, we can hear that. We can see that. Our hearts burn within us as he proclaims the gospel. So that's another work the Savior is doing. And then you cannot leave out the mighty, powerful work that he does in the forgiveness of sins, where he takes the paralytic who's suffering a very great, severe bodily ailment and says, son, let me take care of you first with your greatest need. Your sins are forgiven. Where he takes the woman caught in adultery, being accused by everybody. Your sins are forgiven. This forgiveness of sins, a work that only God can do. So Jesus calls on the first witness, other than John the Baptist setting him aside, calls on the first witness and says, listen, look at what I am doing. And they could clearly and easily say, we have not, this has not been done before, and it has not been done since the time of the Savior. 
And then when you take a look ahead then to the cross, you're getting an idea who's going to die on that cross. It's God who's going to die on that cross. We're at verse 37 of our text. The, word, the Father who sent me, he is the one who test, has testified about me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe the one he sent. The Savior proceeds to call his second powerful witness the Father. We heard at the baptism of Jesus the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard the voice coming from heaven when Peter was a little confused and thinking about Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Let's, they're all kind of great prophets, aren't they? Let's build three tents to each one, one for each one of them. We heard the Father saying, no, this is my son. Listen to him. Now that common Mount Transfiguration comes after the text here. But the voice of the Father has been sent out. And while people had it go in their ears, for most people, it went out of their ears as well. They did not really hear the voice. They did not have the word remaining in them. And they didn't accept or ex accept the testimony that the Father has given. This testimony is one that Jesus calls upon throughout his ministry. I and my Father are one. And he, during, the, during his preaching and teaching, he would say, before Abraham was, I am. And those passages were well understood by the people who heard them because they picked up stones on several occasions to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal to God. Yes, he was. He was making himself equal to God, a testimony that the Father also backed up because he is equal to God. Never before and never since has that happened, a voice coming from heaven saying, among all the human beings in the world, here's my son to no other one except Jesus. Who's going to die on that cross? God's going to die on that cross. And then the Savior goes to the third powerful witness, the fourth if you count John the Baptist, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. They testify of me. We had a chance to see the connection between the Old Testament and Moses and the veil and how that veil is only taken away in Jesus. When you understand that Jesus is the beginning and the end of the scriptures, when you understand that the Old Testament is all about Jesus coming, and the New Testament is all about the Jesus who has come and will come again, then you can understand the scriptures. Then the veil is removed, and the hardness of our human heart, the Spirit has enlightened us to know Jesus is the sum and substance of the Bible. The Savior knew that the people knew, knew about the Bible. He calls upon the Bible. You know about the Bible. You think in the Bible you have eternal life. You search the scriptures. And then the Savior says to them, they testify about me. What you're looking for in the Bible is standing right here in front of you. Now, if you're taking a look at the Bible passages that show that Jesus is true God, what would you stop off at? Well, remember now, you have to stop off in the Old Testament because they, when Jesus is talking in John 5, they don't have the New Testament yet. So where can you stop in the Old Testament to find Jesus is true God? We took one stop off at Psalm 2, where the, where the people, the, the kings and the nations of the world are foaming against the Lord's anointed Jesus. And the Father says, declares a decree, this is my son, today I've begotten you. That's one section. Another one would be Isaiah chapter 7, 
the prophecy about the virgin. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. We sometimes lose the connection of that because we have Emmanuel churches, we have Emmanuel schools, and sometimes we think Emmanuel means God is with us, God be with us, but the scriptures are very clear. Emmanuel means one thing. God, Jesus, is with us. He's in our midst. He is the Emmanuel. You can go further, a couple chapters further in Isaiah and hear about the names that would be given to that coming Savior, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You can stop off at Psalm 22, and after the first portion of the psalm describes the humiliation of the Savior, the second portion goes into his exaltation. The scriptures testify about Jesus. They will tell you what's going to happen to Jesus, how he's going to be bruised. They're going to tell you about how he's going to be crucified. They'll tell you about how he's going to have a resurrection. And that's the, that's the Bible teaching that the Savior had with his disciples and with anyone who listened. Those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in this Jesus. And you can see how easy it is if the Holy Spirit's your teacher. In the, when the wise men came to the city of Jerusalem looking for the king, they asked, where is he going to be born? And that scrambled the so-called Bible scholars to search the scriptures, and they came back with the right answer. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They could tell from the Old Testament testifying about Jesus. The problem was their hearts were hardened. Who is that's going to die on the cross? It's going to be God's son. And never before and never again in the history of the world will there be one book from beginning to end that's going to tell you about the Savior, Jesus. These are important. This is an important Bible truth to know what's happening on Good Friday. That's not just a man that's dying on the cross. It's evident that Jesus is true man because you're going to be able to see the blood coming from the crown of thorns on his head, the blood and the nail prints in his hands and his feet, the gaping hole wound in his side from the spear. You're going to be able to tell he gets thirsty. You're going to be able to tell he suffers pain, and you're going to be able to tell he's a true human being because he dies. He was a true man. But what the devil struggles against and what he just hates is the second portion of that truth. He's also true God. And so the devil continues to spread as much abundant lies about who Jesus is as possible. We're going to enter in the season where Hollywood, TV, books, uh, so-called scholars are going to be popping up here and there, and they're going to, tell you, to entice you with, let's, let's tell you who the real Jesus is. Oh, here's some stories you didn't know about Jesus. And they're going to come, and they're all pawns. The pawns in the hands of the great liar, the devil. And there's a common thread, not in all, but in a lot of those different forms of entertainment, that's going to relegate Jesus to just a human being and take away the doctrine that the Holy Spirit's been talking about this day. Lies, because the devil has to dethrone Christ in order to rob you of your Savior. Another problem comes where the devil makes use of the wisdom of the world. A caution to our, our young people, I guess it doesn't have to be young people, but anybody going off to a public university or college there probably should be some flashing neon signs going on as you go on the campus. Danger zone, danger zone, danger zone. 
Not every class, not everywhere you turn, but a lot of places, sometimes from even your own friends, can come this Bible teach, can come this contradiction to Bible teaching. Jesus was just a man. Oh, he was a great man. He was a great prophet, but he was just a man. So the devil continues to send out lies using whatever form or medium he can. The book of Revelation well describes the flood of stuff that comes out of Satan's mouth, just flooding the world wherever, however possible, with contradiction to this truth. God's going to die on the cross on Good Friday. But it isn't just the devil that's spreading around those lies. It's also the world in which we live. And the world in which you live kind of has a half-truth, doesn't it? There's lots of religions out there, and we all should love everyone else. We should just show love to each other and be tolerant of all other religions. There's a half-truth in there because, obviously, we're to love one another. God wants us to love the world. In fact, we're to imitate the love that Jesus had for the world. And what was his love for the world? I'm going to die for every single sinner, no matter what religion they're in. I'm going to die for every single sinner, no matter what, where they live in the world, no matter what time in the world, no matter what color of skin, no matter what sex they are. I'm going to die for every single human being. I love every single human being. So we are to love one another. And Jesus displayed that by also loving his enemies. But God gave the very first commandment. You should know that God's before me. Because there is only one Savior in the world who loves the world that way, to die for the world. And so while we are to love everyone else in the world, we are not to be tolerant of false gods, of false religions. And you can see passages where God says, I'm a jealous God, and I'm not sharing my honor or my glory with another. And he goes on to explain why. Because there's no other Savior for the world. You can't put all the gods out on a stage and set them one side by side and tell the human beings, take your pick of which one you like to believe in, because we're all going to end up in heaven anyway. It's Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Bible truth is, there's no, other, there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There is no one else who can call upon all of the Bible as a witness that there's a true God. There's no one else who can call on God the Father and have him say, this is my son. And there's no one else in all these other religions that can do the works that Jesus did and still does. While we are to love all people, our love for a Savior and for our fellow human beings compels us to tell them, your religion will lead you to hell. There's only one way to heaven. That's through Jesus. But it isn't just the world and it isn't just the devil that wants to undermine this particular Bible teaching. We carry around in us the third and great enemy of our own sinful flesh. And our own sinful flesh wants to dethrone Christ from being the only hope. Oh, our sinful flesh doesn't mind the fact that we believe in Jesus. It's a nice thing that he came to the earth and showed us that we should love everybody. Now I'm going to go out there and love everybody and get my way to heaven. Or it's a nice thing that Jesus got me forgiveness of sins so far, but I'm going to keep on the right path from now on to my home in heaven. Or it's a nice thing that Jesus was here to show us what we need to do. Our flesh wants to work its way to heaven. And again and again, we have to come back to this Bible doctrine. There is no other Savior. There is no one who gives these works. There is no one who has received this testimony from the Father. And there's no one else who has received this testimony from Scripture. I cannot get there on my own. 
I cannot get there by even contributing something to the cause. Jesus is the one who paid for all of my sins. It's the Holy Spirit who has brought me to that knowledge. Powerful enemies to the powerful truth. The Savior, setting aside the testimony of John, the Savior called three powerful witnesses to testify. Those three powerful witnesses we need because we have powerful enemies that seek to undermine that Bible truth. And here comes the comfort. There's the warning for us, but here comes the comfort. Just because Jesus is true God and true man, we have a Savior. We have a Savior who has conquered death. And think about that to the families in our congregation, to those in our congregation who are approaching death, to those in our congregation who have family members approaching death. Here comes the comfort. Jesus, on Good Friday, died. The Son of God died so that he would conquer death. And that's the kind of message that lights up the deathbed with hope and joy. May God's Spirit preserve us in this blessed truth. The Good Friday dying Savior is both God and man. And may the Holy Spirit use us as witnesses to testify he is the Savior of the world. He is my Savior. Amen.